This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 4th, 1994. KLM City Hopper Flight 433, a Saab 340B with 24 people on board, is on a flight between Amsterdam, Netherlands and Cardiff, Wales. 11 minutes after takeoff, the pilots receive a warning light indicating low oil pressure in the right engine. The pilots run their checklist and conclude the flight is safe to continue. Three minutes later, as the aircraft is approaching 17,000 feet in altitude, the pilots notice the plane is not climbing like it should be. Suspecting that their right engine is faulty, the pilots decide to return to Amsterdam just to be safe. As the plane is approaching the runway, their airspeed drops dangerously low to 115 knots, so at a height of only 45 feet, the captain calls for a go-around. The aircraft rolls right 80 degrees and the airspeed drops to 93 knots before the plane impacts the ground less than 2,000 feet to the right of the runway. Miraculously, only three people on board are killed despite the violent crash. What happened to cause this flight to crash so close to the runway? Was this accident avoidable? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. And uh, we're here with another episode. Before we get started, of course, I want to remind you to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod for pictures, videos, things that enhance the audio podcast experience. Mm-hmm. Also, big thanks to people who leave us reviews on social media or just like Apple Podcasts or anywhere you can. Thank you. That means a lot. We appreciate it. It's weird how much podcasts rely on like word of mouth and reviews. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it, it isn't stressed enough. <laughs> or maybe it is, but people, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like well, at least I always forget. I'll say that. Yeah. I don't stress it as much as I should. So thank you, Chris, for stepping in there. <laughs> no, I just mean in general, I feel like it's like a thing that people say all the time, but it almost becomes white noise, but it really, yeah, it really does make the difference. So absolutely. So KLM City Hopper 433, this was a, a very popular route. It actually ran a few times daily between Amsterdam and Cardiff, Wales. Have you ever been to Amsterdam or to Wales? I've been to Amsterdam, not Wales. I've never been to Wales. I always wanted to visit it. I have been. Amsterdam's the only city in the Netherlands I've been to. I would, I would love to see more of the Netherlands, but I have been to Amsterdam. I took a train, so though, so I didn't see Schiphol Airport. Mm. <laughs> so I have no experience with Same. the airport in Amsterdam. Same. Ah. Look at us. We're 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 trained. Just don't take that as being a me being afraid of flying. <laughs> I was like, oh, we, just, we don't get to take the train very often in the United States. It's like I'm going to take a train from London to Amsterdam. Why not? Yeah. So this this incident, this crash was uh, like we said, April fourth. This was a April fourth, nineteen ninety four. This was a Monday. It was right after Easter. Easter oh. was the day before April third, nineteen ninety four. Okay. So this flight was filled with people who were returning home after an Easter trip. Well, not entirely, but mostly, right? Presumably, like, yeah. Right. Pres- people who had gone on like a, a quick Easter trip. I think, I want to say the flight between Amsterdam, I'm sorry, the flight, yeah, the flight between Amsterdam and Cardiff was, was only like an hour and 20 minutes or something. It was supposed to be a pretty short flight. Yeah. It can't have been that long. Yeah. As the, the name of the airline, City Hopper, implies. Oh. <laughs> KLM City Hopper. So it's people, you know, going home after a holiday weekend. But, you know, this was... A smaller plane, so there were only 21 passengers on board and three crew members, the two pilots and one cabin crew, one flight attendant. The flight was under the command of Captain Garrett Levart, who was 37 years old with 2,605 hours of flying time, including 1,214 hours on the Saab 340, this kind of plane. Uh, the first officer was Paul Stassen, who was 34 years old with 1,334 hours uh, on the Saab 340. You know, the Saab 340, it's a Swedish-made plane. It's a twin-engine turboprop. So it's got 
the two propellers, one on either side. It's not, you know, jet engines. Uh, it's the propeller kind. And it's a, it's a smaller plane. Typically, it seats between 30 to 36 passengers. So at 24, it wasn't like totally empty, but it wasn't super full. It was over half. Like, what, what is that? Like 66%, two thirds full? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not, but not by, not a huge plane by any stretch of the imagination. But even if you've never flown on a Saab 340, you've probably flown on a comparable regional plane, like for a regional. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it had flown 6,558 hours at the time of the accident. The plane had flown that many hours. That's not that long. No, it's not, not super old by any stretch of the imagination. We've, we've definitely covered planes that are way, way older. Yeah. Then this flight took off from Schiphol Airport uh-huh. at 2.19 p.m. local time. So it's an afternoon flight. That's 12.19 universal time. So it's two hours ahead. After takeoff, when they were passing through 1,950 feet, the flight was cleared to climb to 9,000 feet and later cleared by Amsterdam radar to climb to 14,000 feet. So all, you know, run to the mill, uh-huh, uh-huh. taking off, climbing, gaining altitude. At 1 p.m. universal time, there was an active trough positioned over the southern part of the North Sea and was moving eastward with a speed of approximately 30 knots. So that's like uh, weather. Okay, a trough? Like, is that trough. like a... It's an area of low pressure. Okay. It's like, you think of a trough as being like a ditch, right? Like yeah, a ditch yeah, or like a thing that pigs eat out of. <laughs> that's a... Is that a trough? Isn't it? I guess it is, isn't it? Uh, but yeah, so you can think of it the same way. The air kind of dips down. Okay. It's an area of low pressure. That, that's the way I remember it anyway. Okay, yeah. So it's not necessarily anything bad, just something to keep in mind, right? Like, oh, there's some trough up there. It may cause maybe a little bumpiness. And so, you know, with that in mind, and to avoid cloud coverage, the crew requested a cruising altitude of 20,000 feet, which was approved. Mm-hmm. So while they were passing through 16,500 feet, the master warning alarm goes off in the cockpit. You know, that's just the alarm, like the general, hey, problem alarm. Okay, I assume it's like that goes off and then you look and then it shows you more specifically, right? Right. That just calls your attention. Yeah. You disable it and then you look around like what's actually triggering the master mm. warning. Okay. So they, they do that they, they, and they tell that the master warning is triggered by the number two engine oil pressure light. So that's just a warning that it's just a light that illuminates that tells them the oil pressure in engine number two is low. Okay. And... When it says like low pressure in the oil, so is there like a tank of oil that distributes oil as needed onto like gears and things? Like how? Well, it's the oil that's running through the engine at any given time. You can think of it. I mean, your your car has that too. The you know in your car, the oil lubricates the pistons in the engine when it's firing. It's the same thing. It's it's the oil has to be pressurized so that it circulates and goes through the entire system. Okay. So if there's low pressure. It could be triggered by maybe there's an oil leak or mm-hmm. okay. maybe like there, there's like there's just the, the system is not pressurized. There's a leak somewhere so that the pressure is escaping, which would cause the, the pressure to go down, which would cause the oil pressure to go uh, light to go off. However, despite that warning, the oil pressure gauge was still showing pressure was above 30 PSI, which was still in the safe operating limit. So you say the gauge still said 30 PSI, right? Was the gauge not working or is was it a thing or, oh, it should be at 40, but they were down to 30, but that's okay. Like no, that kind of thing. 30 is normal operating level. Okay. So the, 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 the interesting thing here, like you uh-huh. asked the perfect question, Chris. The interesting thing here is that the oil pressure alert system and the oil pressure gauge light are two separate systems. Mm, okay. And that's for redundancy. So the checklist has the pilots cross-check them to determine 
if it's a false alarm. Oh. So, you know, if in this case, the oil pressure light or oil pressure, low oil pressure warning goes off. So they look at the gauge to see how much oil pressure there is and it looks okay. So that tells them it's fine. And the checklist tells them continue normal flight operation. Because presumably it's a false alarm according to the checklist at that point. Exactly. Because the oil pressure gauge is still showing there's plenty of pressure. The pressure is fine in the engine. Okay. So it's like, okay, checklist says it's okay to continue. You know, if I don't know what the checklist says specifically, but I assume if there was low oil pressure, it would say, hey, something's wrong. Then it would give actions to take. But in this case, it tells them if you have 30 PSI, if you have above 30 PSI or above, continue your flight like normal. No problem. So, you know, that, that's what they do. They continue their the flight. However, right after this, they noticed that their climb power was greatly reduced. So, you know, they're, now they're starting to think, oh, maybe there is something wrong after all. So they issue a pan-pan call, which is kind of like a mayday, but it's not as urgent. It's like, hey, something's wrong, but we're not in any immediate danger. Just we do have a problem. And they say their climb power was reduced as in? They were climbing a lot more slowly than they should have been. They were struggling to gain altitude. To gain altitude. Okay. And they could just feel it because they're like, well, we should be going up a lot more. Okay. Right. And there's gauges to show yeah. like what their vertical speed is. And it's like, oh, you know, our, we're not climbing like how we normally do. And these are pilots who have both flown yeah. this plane for a long time. They can so tell they can like, feel oh, it. yeah, it's like, oh, we're not, we're not climbing like we should. So that's why they issue a pan pan. And they're like, man, this is when they're not in any immediate danger. And they decide, you know what? Something's not right. We got this warning. Our climb performance isn't normal. So let's go ahead and go back to Skipple Airport just to be safe. Okay. That seems prudent. Right. That, that's the exact word I would use. Seems prudent. Uh-huh. So they start their descent and they, you know, like I said, they were at, they were at about 16,500 feet when they started this. They get down to about 2,000 feet, you know, and they begin giving a little more thrust to the engines. Because at first, when you're descending, you don't really need to give thrust, right? You can pull back and uh-huh. just descend. So they start giving a little more thrust. And then right as they're lined up on final, just 45 feet over the runway, the plane banks 80 degrees to the right and impacts the ground. Only, what did I say, like 1,800 feet to the right of the center line of the runway. And it kills three people on the plane, one of which was the captain and then two passengers in the cabin. Oh, man. So, and I might remember, the, you, I thought you said they were going to do a go around. Yeah, I left that out here. Okay. So they, des- they descend. Uh-huh. What, happened, what happened was they start descending and their airspeed gets a little low. The captain's not happy with it. So he initiates a go around. It's when the go around is initiated that they roll to the right and then impact the ground. So their airspeed air is too low to land? Yeah, it's, it's getting dangerous. In order to land, pilots like to have what they call a stabilized approach. Uh-huh. You want to make sure you're descending at a nice steady rate and your speed's you know, in a little sweet spot, not too slow. Like, it's like Goldilocks, not too yeah. slow, not too fast, <laughs> just right. If it's too fast, you float down the runway a long way. If it's too slow, you run the danger of stalling. So you know, you, that's why you put flaps out so you can get a little slower than normal, mm-hmm. come in nice and stable and touch down. Mm-hmm. And so he, they, were, they were coming in too slow. He was worried about stalling. Right. And then hitting hard, I guess, like stalling and then like falling, I guess, essentially. Exactly. Right. Stalling and then crashing. He calls for a go around, which seems like the safe thing to do. But then uh-huh. the plane rolls 80 degrees to the right and um, just, hits the ground. Just ran, just rolls. Just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like 80 degrees, that's almost. Yeah. Almost. Like 90, 90 degrees would be wings, you know, straight up uh, yeah. and down. Uh, so 80 degrees is almost, you know, all the way to the right. Yeah, that, is, that does sound wild. Like a, a hard crash. I don't know. It's amazing to me that only three people died in this crash because that's very violent. I uh, When they hit the ground, I want to say they were going like 93 knots. So that's 
pretty fast and they were 45 feet up in the air when that happened. And 93 knots is the equivalent of about 107 miles an hour or 172 kilometers an hour. Yeah, 107 miles, 45 feet up in the air, and they land. It basically crashed on their side. Right. So it's pretty violent, but majority of the people do survive. I guess 45 feet in the air is better than 40,000 feet in the air. That's, that's true. <laughs> I saw an interview with one of the women who was on this plane and who survived the accident. And, you know, she said that she crawled out of the wreckage and, you know, she was, you know, walked a little ways away from the plane and sat down and pulled out a cigarette and start, you know, lit it up and started smoking. And then one of the other people there was like, should you be doing that? You know, it's, it's kind of dangerous. You're covered yeah. in jet fuel. <laughs> oh my god her, her reply was if i was meant to die today i already would have <laughs> oh man I, uh, not not safe i wouldn't i would not uh, like that cigarette wait a little bit yeah like she was covered in jet fuel yeah oh my god but uh she was she was okay it also seems not safe to those around you yeah yeah like, for sure you don't want to be the person uh everyone made uh and then all of a sudden you start a fire and, and Right, that's not, but I, I understand. She was probably rattled yeah, and not yeah. thinking it's correctly funny, at it's the a time. Funny, it's a funny little uh, tidbit. Yeah. So any bef before we get into the investigation portion here, any initial thoughts on what's happening here? It sounds like you brought up that trough, and I wonder, I mean, it seems like that's, you brought that up for a reason. I do like to throw red herrings in sometimes, don't forget. Yeah. And then the low pressure, is, I mean, something, okay. The, the reason they like banked to the right was like, was, was the, I assume there was actually like low pressure on the, in, in the oil and they were low. Is there a way in which the gears like froze up or like, because there was no, not enough oil lubricating them and it like pulled the plane to the right or something? I think you're on the right track, right? That there's some kind, potentially some kind of asymmetric thrust going on mm -hmm. where the left engine is giving a lot of power and the right engine isn't. And like, that's why it banks and yeah. starts rolling to the right. It's because, weird that it's so sudden, though. Right. But it happened right after they initiated their go-around. Oh, yeah. Which is when they normally increase and they thrust. the power. Right. And then if it wasn't thrusting at all, that would push it to that. Mm. That, that is the, the line of thinking I would be following right now, for sure. That's, that's definitely the first thing I thought. You know, when you, when you hear about this incident and how this crash happened, it's like, oh, that's... It's definitely pointing you in one direction. We'll say that. To the, to the right. <laughs> to the right. <laughs> I hate you, Chris. <laughs> that, was, that was really funny. <laughs> so the investigation was carried out by the Accident and Incident Investigation Bureau of the Netherlands Aviation Safety Board. And uh, we'll go ahead and review some of the things that happened here. During the climb at 1230 and 46 seconds UTC, while passing through 16,500 feet, the master warning was triggered by the right engine oil pressure light. The master warning was reset and the captain retarded the right-hand power lever slowly to flight idle and commanded, take action. The right-hand engine torque decreased from 78% to 10%. The first officer confirmed the command, take action, and announced emergency checklist. So far, so good. Mm -hmm. First officer immediately announced, right engine oil pressure, confirmed by the captain with, check. This is when they're looking at the yeah. oil pressure gauge, like we talked mm -hmm. about. So, like I said, when this is going on, the captain retarded the right-hand power lever slowly. However, that is not part of the checklist procedure. No. So no. So he pulls the right-hand power back to idle. They run the checklist and complete the checklist. But for some, he doesn't tell the first officer he's pulling back the right-hand power and does it just kind of on his own. And it's possible, you know, he thought if there was low oil pressure or something wrong with the right engine, he wanted to prevent damage to it. Uh-huh. 
However, because he pulled back the right-hand power, the oil pressure light or the oil pressure gauge decreases on that side because the power's going down. Yeah, so that, oh. So they see the oil pressure go down. It's still in the safe range, but when they're looking at it, you know, the first officer sees the oil pressure go down. He doesn't know that the power's been pulled idle. He's like, well, that's weird. The oil pressure went down, but it's still in the safe range. So do we know what it was before? I don't have that in front of me. I want to say it was like at 50 and then it went down to 30. That's off the top of my head. I could be wrong on that. I don't have that mm-hmm. specific number in front of me. But it, the, the important thing to remember here is even at 30, it's still in the safe range. But wait, they said that low, it was low, low, low pressure. Well, low, lower compared to the left engine, it was low because okay. the left engine's still at high power. The right engine's idle. So they look at them and they look, oh yeah, the right engine oil pressure is low. It's still in the safe range, but it's low. Okay, but wait, you, it went from 50 to 30. Yeah, because they, they, he pulled the right-hand engine power back to idle. So the pressure went down, but I thought it was low pressure to begin with, so it went even more down? Uh, so the low oil pressure light went off, uh-huh. which is what made them check it. But when they look at the oil pressure gauge, which shows the exact number, they see that it decreases from 50 to 30, but that's still in the safe green range. So what, what is low pressure then in, in that if, what would set off that alarm it, 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 on the gauge so the gauge doesn't have an alarm the gauge just shows you the reading okay so i guess what should it be or what is the ideal pressure then it can vary there's like a range typically there's like okay. a like a little green i don't know about the sob 340 specifically but typically at most places there'll be like a little green arc that the the needle should be within i can't tell you the exact number i've never I don't, I've never been in the cockpit of a Saab 340. Mm-hmm. I, all I can tell you is that 30 is in the green arc. Okay. 50 and 30 are both in the green arc. Okay, so it went from green to green then. It was still in the green. It went down, but it's still in the green. Yeah. And the first officer doesn't know why, but it's because the captain pulled back to idle and didn't tell him. Okay. So there, it's just one of those things like, yeah. oh, that's weird. It's still in the green though. We're fine. Okay. So in the checklist, it's just like continue flying as normal is the basic Right, thing. because it's still in the green. Nothing's out of the ordinary. Well, I'm saying, but even when they're doing the checklist, it's like, don't change anything because they want to keep it consistent. To right. Run the ch- and then he, but he does change. Okay. Correct. Exactly. So, you know, they finish the checklist and they determine it's fine. That's, you know, they're supposed to continue flying. Okay. So then at this point, they continue flying. The master warning was triggered again. And after the warning was reset, the first officer indicated the oil pressure of the right hand engine was lower than the oil pressure of the left hand engine and that the oil pressure on the right hand engine was decreasing. This is, this is a repetition of what we just talked about. They, they noticed that it's, it's going down, but it's still in the green. And then six seconds later, the master warning is triggered for a third time and it's reset again. Mm. The first officer says to the captain, the oil pressure on the right engine was still decreasing. And this is confirmed by the captain. And the first officer concluded following the procedure, the checklist, that the propeller oil pressure low procedure was not applicable and continued with the engine oil pressure low procedure. So they're just still running the checklist, just making this, you know, noting these things. Eight seconds after that, the first officer proceeded uh, with reading the checklist, engine oil pressure control warning panel light on or engine oil pressure below 30 PSI. The captain responded with, that is not the case, but it is still normally in the green. That is what is so strange which is then confirmed by the first officer. And there's no indication in the cockpit voice recorder that the engine oil pressure low procedure was completed. The right engine oil pressure light remained on and the captain left the right-hand power level at the flight idle position. So they kind of, you know, start running the checklist. The alarm keeps going off. They keep silencing it. They're like, yeah, it's weird. The pressure's dropping. And then they kind of abandon the checklist. Part Why? Way 
I think at this point, this is when they're like, we should just go ahead and return to Skipple. Okay, but should they not continue the checklist anyway? Yeah, they should. They really should. Right? Absolutely. I mean, like, the, it's all there for a reason. That's <laughs> it, there, there, it, There's a logic to it, and there's a flow to it, and it needs to be run all the way through. This episode's brought to you by Smart News. There is no shortage of information available at our fingertips these days. It can be overwhelming and sometimes discouraging to try to keep up, but staying informed does not have to be a challenge. Smart News is here to streamline the way you consume media and get you straight to the stories that matter most through delivering critical and breaking news curated just for you. I don't know about you. I feel like for me, it can be a struggle to find accurate news on the internet these days between different news sites, maybe some of you never heard of, social media blasting all kinds of stuff. That's one of the reasons I love Smart News. It picks and curates information from sources just for me. I've saved a ton of time by not having to sift through dozens of articles that may or may not be accurate. It really does find things that would be of interest to me based on topics or even on my location. I've got a specific tab set up just for news here in Austin so I can keep up with things that are happening in my area. Smart News aggregates local and global stories from trusted publishers so you can stay informed on what matters most to you from local weather to trending TV shows all in one app. It scans stories, analyzes headlines, and partners with respected publishers to deliver information that helps you live smarter. You can say goodbye to information overload and hello to saving time and getting straight to the news you care about. Plus, you can easily personalize your feed by following top publishers, adjusting notifications, and getting alerts in your area all in one app. Download Smart News for free today in the App Store to get the news that matters most. That's S-M-A-R-T-N-E-W-S. Search for in the Apple App Store uh, on your iPhone or iPad or Google Play Store for Android users. The news app made smarter. Discover the all-in-one platform that delivers all the information you need. At this point, you know, they're over the southern portion of the North Sea, and the captain indicates to the first officer that He's not going to continue to the destination with an engine oil pressure low warning. The first officer indicated to the captain that according to the checklist, it should be determined whether or not the engine oil pressure was below 30 PSI with the oil pressure warning light on. And the captain states that the right-hand oil pressure was above 50 PSI earlier. And then, you know, they, they did kind of go back and forth and they note that the pressure had dropped. So they decide, they both come to agreement. Yeah, let's go ahead and return back to Skipple. And this is probably due to their poor climb performance and the fact that the master warning kept going off and they kept having to reset it. So they're just like, something's off. Something's not right. Let's just go ahead and go back. So the captain instructed the first officer to obtain clearance to descend to 16,000 feet Mm -hmm. and to inform air traffic control that they had to return to Amsterdam due to a technical problem. The first officer suggests to the captain that they send out the pan call. And after some consideration, the captain agreed a pan call would be appropriate. So they contacted Amsterdam Radar and they started the message with their pan call, informing them they had an engine problem, that they would like to maintain flight level 160, 16,000 feet for return to Amsterdam. Amsterdam Radar confirmed their call and cleared them to turn right, returning to Schiphol. And the flight responded they were turning right and they were descending to flight level 160. Okay. So after this, like a minute after this, the first officer contacted the commuter handling unit at Amsterdam on the company frequency so this is like they're calling the airline and they're informing them that they're returning to Amsterdam with a technical problem with the right-hand engine and the message was confirmed. After informing Schiphol approach that they were returning to Amsterdam with an engine problem, Amsterdam radar cleared them to descend to flight level 070 and instructed them to contact Schiphol approach. When the captain started descending to flight level 070, the first officer suggested to the captain that they inform the passengers. Because at this point, they've already Uh started turning around and descending. They haven't told the passengers anything. They're like, oh, yeah, we should probably tell them that we're we're going back. (laughs) By the way, we're landing, but not the right... (laughs) Yeah, not where you expect. The captain decided that they should inform the cabin attendant first. 
then after that, they can tell the passengers. So, the, you know, they're going to tell the flight attendant and then tell the passengers. Mm-hmm. At the suggestion of the first officer, the captain decided that the first officer should call the flight attendant and then tell the passengers while the captain continued to fly the plane. At 12.35 and 12 seconds, the first officer informed the cabin attendant and then the passengers that the aircraft was returning to Amsterdam and the aircraft would land in approximately 20 minutes. And I'm sure if you were on this flight, it'd be the kind of thing where you're like, oh, I just <laughs> wanted to get home, right? It's like, Well, it's not a long flight anyway. And if they're like, oh, we just, you'd be like, oh, we're going back. Right. It's like, oh, it's so annoying. Like, I was hoping to be home. Now we're going to be delayed. Who knows what's going to happen? I should have just drove <laughs> or taken the train. <laughs> uh, drove. To- <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe the train. I guess you yeah, could drive. I guess pe- yeah. People could probably put their car on the channel, right? On the train that goes through the channel. Can't you? I think you can. I never, I never considered it, but I bet you can. Well, oh, I got to look that up, Chris. I don't want to. Oh, sorry. I also looked up profit. It is a thing that, that animals eat out of. Oh, oh nice. <laughs> so you cannot drive through oh. the channel. However, you can drive. You load your car onto the train. Then you get off your car oh. into the train. And then okay. when you get to the other side, you get out of the train and get back into your car. Okay. So I'm going to say, yes, you can do that. It's just, it's just a little complicated, at least according to that one website I just looked up right now. Okay. Anyway, we're off the rails. Oh, we're, we're on the rails. <laughs> uh, at 1236 and 32 seconds, the captain who was handling the radio while the first officer was, you know, talking to the passengers, contacted Skipple Approach, and they were told by Skipple Approach to expect a straight-in approach for either runway 06 or runway 01 right. And the captain indicated he would use runway 06. Skipple approach confirmed the choice of runway 06, and they were cleared to descend to 2,000 feet and instructed to fly in a heading of 090. After the first officer finished his statement on the public address system, he reported back to the captain and was informed the aircraft was cleared to descend to 2,000 feet for a straight-in approach on runway 06. And the captain calls for the descent and the approach checklists. It's all very standard. While reading the checklist, the fastened seatbelt sign was switched on at 12.37 and 14 seconds. At 12.37 and 35 seconds, Skipple Approach informed Skipple Tower that this flight would make it a straight-in approach on runway 06. Skipple Approach requested Skipple mm-hmm. Tower to order the fire brigade to take position along the landing runway. Wow. But this is standard. Oh, okay. Yeah, something's wrong. As an engine problem, they're going to roll the trucks just to be safe in case there's a fire, That's something good. happens. Yeah, like, obviously, this is not a normal landing. Even though it's not a mayday, it's a pan-pan. Something's wrong. They, they will go ahead and stage emergency response out there just to be safe. Okay. In the meantime, Skipple Approach is asking the flight if they can give any details regarding the situation. And the captain says that an engine oil pressure problem in engine number two, but the situation's under control. When asked by Skipple Approach if the engine was feathered, we've talked about feathering before. Do you remember what this is? Feather? Is that like... Um... It, it's when, like on a propeller engine, they turn the propellers so that they're not biting into the air. They're not giving any thrust. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like... They're turned ba- basically so that they're like perpendicular straight into the air. They're still spinning and turning, but they're not providing any thrust. Yeah. And then and then that that makes it so it's like it's not being used, I guess, at all. Right. It, it's like it's really not giving any thrust. So Skipple asks them that, and the captain says... The engine's running in flight idle. And this information's passed to Skipple Tower so that they know. Should he have feathered it? I mean, I guess they're asking if they did. I think they're just asking an abundance of caution to know okay. like what the situation is. Passing through flight level 075, Skipple arrival informed the flight. The surface wind was 250 at 10 knots, and the aircraft was number one for landing on runway 06. Does that raise any red flags for you? Well, they have a crosswind. 
They have a, a, a very small crosswind, but they have a significant tailwind. Oh, so they're going to be coming in fast? Right. The wind's going to be pushing the plane. And also, you're, when, you have a, when you have a tailwind, your ground speed is increased, but your airspeed is decreased. Yeah, but he said they were coming in too, too, wait, no, too, too slow. Yeah, so that's why they were stalling. Right. Or, or he was afraid of stalling, yeah. Exactly. The ground speed's high because they're being pushed from behind. The mm-hmm. airspeed's low because they're not flying into the wind. So at this time, they're 11 miles due west of Amsterdam. They get vectored for a position to land on 06. Should, should they have, sorry, you, you know, like you said, that, that could, that's not ideal for the situation, right? Should they have flown in on a different runway or changed that? Well, when they were given this wind reading uh-huh. by the airport, the first officer tells the captain, hey, we're going to have a 10-knot tailwind <laughs> if we oh. land on runway 06, which the captain acknowledges. So the, that's kind of like the first officer raising his hand like, hey, um, that's not good. Yeah. So, okay. The first, it, it alarms the first officer. I, wouldn't, I don't know about alarms, but he just, he points it out. Like, that's yeah, not, not good. Okay. Yeah. And the captain just acknowledges it. Mm. But maybe he, he's just like, I just want to get on the ground. Maybe. And, in the, you know, in the case of emergencies, you know, sometimes you'll land in situations that aren't ideal. Well, but he didn't. He tried to do a run. <laughs> he tried to do yeah, a go around. Uh, a go around. So during level flight at 5,000 feet, the captain stated to the first officer that the right-hand oil pressure indicated a steady pressure of more than 50 PSI, which was confirmed by the first officer, who also informed the captain he agreed with the decision to return to Amsterdam. They continued their descent, passing through 4,200 feet while descending to 2,000 feet. Skipple arrival says, KLM-433, can you steer left heading 060 for finals runway 06? What direction will you turn? The captain calls out left. After which the first officer responds to arrival, we are turning over left heading 060 KLM 433. So they're starting the left turn. They're going to get lined up on that runway. Uh-huh. Upon reaching 2,000 feet, thrust was applied to the left-hand engine for the first time since they started their descent. And the airspeed was reduced from 180 knots to approximately 155 knots. At this time, the first officer mentions to the captain, because you're flying flight idle, you probably have less problems than you might have had otherwise. To which the captain responds, yes. So he's just saying... Since they were at the engine's idle coming down, descending this whole time, they probably didn't experience any problems. But now that he's giving it power, problems may start popping back up again. Just kind of like a, hey, reminder, yeah. we, we do have a problem. It may, it may pop up right First now. First officer's on, his, on, on point. Seems like he's, he's, he's noting things. Which is good. That's what you want him to be doing. That's right. right. I mean, he should be like, because the captain's flying, so he should be like calling stuff out, right? So he's doing exactly. exactly what he should be doing. Exactly. But I will say I am somewhat worried that the captain is just kind of saying yes or just yeah. kind of acknowledging things without he's not processing it yeah. doesn't seem like no yeah that's that's the worrying but i'm saying the first officers he's yeah but i yeah and i i agree i'm just trying to say like yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first officer may be on his game but the the communication's very one directions right now yeah so at 12:42 and 26 seconds uh skipple arrival instructed them to fly heading 050 and report runway in sight stating that they were at about eight miles out 13 seconds later, the first officer reports runway in sight, which was confirmed by the captain four seconds later. The first officer also says landing is imminent. At 12.43 and six seconds, they intercepted the runway 06 ILS localizer. So they're getting lined up. Their instruments come alive. It shows them like their their guidance. After which the gear was selected down and approximately 78% torque was applied to the left-hand engine. Shortly thereafter, the runway 06 glide slope was also intercepted. Flaps were set to 15 and the torque was reduced. The localizer is what gives them left to right guidance. 
to make sure they're lined up on the runway. And the uh-huh. glide slope is what gives them vertical up and down guidance. So it's like a, it's almost like a video game that they're, that they're playing where you stay right on the glide slope and right on the localizer and it guides you straight in for the perfect landing. Okay. Well, I mean, that sounds fun. <laughs> so at 12.43 and 25 seconds, the aircraft was established on the runway 06 ILS. Gears down, flap set at 15, and the captain commanded for the landing checklist. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're getting close. On final approach, landing flaps were set to 20, and just prior to passing the outer marker, at which time the landing checklist was completed by the first officer. Passing the outer marker, the outer marker's just a beacon that, that goes off when, you know, lets them know they're getting close. Passing the outer marker, the aircraft was established on the runway 06 ILS in landing configuration and flying with the autopilot engaged. Torque on the left-hand engine was set at 28%, while the right-hand engine remained at flight idle. Yeah, so just using the left-hand engine. Correct. Indicated airspeed at the moment was 142 knots and was reducing to the target approach speed of 125. So still going a little fast, but their airspeed's going down. They're, you know, they're slowing down to get uh-huh. to the speed they need to be. While passing 1,080 feet altitude uh, at a speed of 127 knots, torque on the left-hand engine was increased to 60% in order to stop their airspeed reduction and maintain their target approach speed of 125 knots. Initially, airspeed decreased further to 120 knots and then increased to 130. So they're messing with the left-hand power a little bit to, to make sure they're in that sweet spot of speed. Mm-hmm. At this point, Skipal arrival states they give a wind update, saying the wind's going to be at 280 degrees at 8 knots and then 280 degrees at 9 knots. Both reports were confirmed by the first officer by clicking his microphone button. And then on the request of the captain, the first officer states the tailwind component will be 8 knots. Okay. So, you know, they get yeah. this wind update and the captain, you know, asks the first officer, so what's the tailwind now? Eight knots. So it went down because it was 10. It was 10. Not as bad, but it's still an eight knot tailwind. It's still not good. Mm-hmm. So when they pass through 880 feet, the autopilot still engaged. The first officer comments, the trim is all the way to the left. He suggested to the captain to set the rudder trim neutral just before landing, to which the captain responded with, yes, that will make it easier then while passing through 612 feet, the captain disconnects the autopilot. So uh, did he do that? He, it's, it's not at this point. No. But when he disconnects, no, just I'll, I'll just, I'll say no, not as far as I know, not at this point. Okay. But this, this also right here, this is a clue that should have told them or that should have given them a heads up or should have given them a warning. If the rudder trim is all the way to the left like that, they have a severe, severe thrust asymmetry. Yeah. So th- it was all the way to the left because it was on autopilot. And the autopilot was compensating, right? Exactly, Chris. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, you've learned a lot uh, from this podcast. Like we said, the autopilot's on, this rudder trim's all the way to the left. Everything's being compensated. So they don't realize how bad the how thrust bad. asymmetry is. Mm-hmm. And they're getting really low to the ground, so you don't have time to react. So yeah. they, at this point now, they're passing through 500 feet. Landing clearance was confirmed by both pilots. So the, the first officer, what did he say exactly? He said, he said, the trim is all the way to the left. He suggested to set the rudder trim to neutral just before landing. Mm, so this this is where the first officer should have been like, hey, that's weird. Yeah, like, why why is that? Yeah, because if it's on... So that was first officer not noticing, that was him not being on point, right? Well, yeah, he's noticing well, that he that's weird. he noticed it was weird, but he didn't get, like... Because he was saying, oh, put it to neutral, because it'll be easier to land. Maybe he should have asked, why is it all the way to the yeah. left? Yeah, he noticed the right thing, but then didn't, like, yeah... And, and under normal operation, he's right. If both engines are operating the same, you want that neutral. Otherwise, it's, you're going to have a lot of yaw. It's going to make it difficult. Like it'll wobble or push to the right? Exactly. Uh, oh, it'll push to the right? It'll push, push to, to the, the left. left. Yeah, yeah push sorry. to the left. Yeah. 
So uh, they were passing through 500 feet. Landing clearance was confirmed by both pilots. Uh, and then torque on the left-hand engine was reduced to 45%. Airspeed was maintained at about 128 knots until passing 300 feet altitude. And then they reduced torque on the left-hand engine further to 30%. And at this point, they're just slightly, ever so slightly below the glide path. So they pull back, they increase their pitch to get back on the glide slope exactly. Uh-huh. They continue to reduce power while passing through about 230 feet with an airspeed of 120 knots. The first officer indicated to the captain he would position the rudder trim to neutral, to which the captain agreed. So now they're taking action on the thing. At that time, the aircraft was on the glide slope. Shortly thereafter, the pitch of the aircraft was decreased, and they, you know, they fell a little below the glide slope again, so they pulled back again to get back on the glide slope. And torque on the left-hand engine was increased from 30% to 40%. And at this point, their airspeed had dropped to 115 knots. And the first officer calls out, mind your airspeed. Passing through 120 feet, an aggressive increase in torque from 40 to 65% was applied, but hardly any additional rudder input was given to correct for the asymmetry. So they increase mm. the power, but they don't apply rudder to, to compensate. Because they're only increasing on the left engine. Correct. They're not touching the right-hand engine at all. Uh-huh. After correcting the initial small rolling movement to the right, the aircraft was kept wings level by significant aileron input. So the aircraft begins rolling to the right a little bit, and what they should be doing, the correct course of action, is to give it rudder to straighten it out. But the captain is fighting the roll just by, with the aileron, so he's turning his control column to the left when he should be giving it, like stepping on that rudder a bit to, to, to even it out. Okay. The aircraft veered approximately six degrees to the right while they were at 90 feet above the ground just before the landing threshold. The aircraft positioned itself to the right of the extended center line, so they're drifting to the right. Yeah. Torque was reduced from 65% to 40%, which further reduced the airspeed to 110 knots. Then while passing through 45 feet, flying to the right of the runway at an airspeed of 110 knots, the captain commanded, going around, set torque, flap seven, gear up. So he notices, like, they're off to the right of the runway. They're not lined up correctly. Their airspeed's low, so that's why he calls for the go-around. These commands were given by the captain were acknowledged by the first officer. Torque is set at 98% on the left-hand engine, while the right-hand engine remained flight idle. Flaps started to move from the 20-degree position to the 7-degree position. No acknowledgement was given for gear up, but the landing gear was selected up immediately after flap 7 was selected. So over the next 7 seconds, when the torque was increased from 40% to 98%, uh -huh. no additional rudder deflection was applied. But again, the initial roll to the right and the additional asymmetry were counteracted by significant aileron input up to the maximum control wheel deflection. So they're basically giving it full power on the left-hand engine while the right-hand engine's idle. Uh -huh. He's not giving it any corrective rudder input. Instead, he's trying to turn his aileron to the point where his control wheel is turned all the way to the left, like to the maximum. It cannot turn left anymore. And why wouldn't he also do the rudder? I don't know. That, that, that's the... He absolutely should have been stepping on that rudder to correct it. Then the pitch of the aircraft initially increases from 4 degrees to 7 degrees, mm -hmm. and then it goes all the way up to 12 degrees, and the airspeed decreased to 105 knots, and then a sudden increase in pitch triggered the stall warning. So then they nose down to 6 degrees and the stall warning stops, uh -huh. but by this point the airspeed has decreased to 97 knots. Ooh. The aircraft started a shallow turn to the right with you know progressively increasing bank angle, and finally, some additional rudder deflection was applied, but full rudder deflection was not applied for another six seconds after that. So he should have ruddered all the way to the left, like the autopilot was, to compensate, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, probably immediately as soon as he increased that power, he should have been on that left rudder. 
but instead he waited several seconds. You know, he was trying to correct with the ailerons by turning his wheel all the way to the left. That doesn't work. A few more seconds go by, and then he starts kind of stepping on the rudder a little bit. And then after a while, he starts giving it full or more rudder Mm -hmm. deflection. Three seconds later, the pitch of the aircraft had been increased again to nine degrees, and the stall warning was triggered for a second time. Airspeed was 100 knots. The stall warning continued to remain active until the moment of impact. During the last few seconds of the flight, the aircraft banked further to the right, and the airspeed decreased to less than 93 knots. At 12.46 and 9 seconds, the aircraft crashed into the ground just outside Schiphol Airport with approximately 80 degrees right bank. And when this happens, a major alert is given at the airport, and all flights to and from Amsterdam were stopped at 12.46 and 22 seconds. That's intense kind of rundown. I'm like, oh. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a lot happening. Uh-huh. I don't know if we've ever really gone like second by second that much into what's happening yeah. in the moments of leading up to a crash like that. So when the go around was initiated, their speed, which was 110 knots, was higher than the minimum speed, which was 103 knots. And with proper flight technique, the aircraft could have been kept under control. I know that's probably the big question everyone has. Like, yeah. Was this inevitable? Performance calculations show that in the configuration with the flaps at seven and landing gear up, the available climb gradient of 2.3% should have made a go around possible. So this was entirely, it was entirely possible to successfully go around in this configuration. What, what was going on here? With the problems that the plane was having. Correct. And did they need to do a go around? Well, we're going to get into that, Chris. (laughs) Well, so I I will say this. Uh Based on their unstabilized approach and what was happening at the moment, yes, the go around was the right call. They were not lined up on the runway and they were getting slow. So based on that, yes. However, the other question is, how did they end up in this unstabilized approach? Would it have been possible to make a stabilized approach in the first place? Yeah. And it's like, well, they're never, they're not going to have a perfect landing because something's wrong. So, right. So the aircraft hit the ground in a steep right turn with slightly nose-low attitude and approximately 80-degree bank to the right. The ground speed at the moment of impact was 93 knots. During the last moments of flight, landing gear was up, flaps were extended at 7 degrees, and the estimated damage sequence was reconstructed and is described as followed. This is an interesting part of the report, I thought. They break down, like, step-by-step exactly how the impact happened and what what happened. Hmm. The right-hand wingtip hit the ground and was ripped from the wing. The outer panel of the outer wing broke off. The inner panel of the outer wing hit the ground and broke off outboard of the engine. The right-hand engine hit the ground. Propeller blades separated. Engine and inner wing section broke off from the center section. The right-hand inner wing section was projected in such a way that it hit the right-hand side of the fuselage. So the inner part of the wing just got ripped off and hit the body of the plane. The right-hand horizontal stabilizer tip hit the ground and the stabilizer was bent approximately 20 degrees upwards. The right-hand side of the cockpit and the right-hand side of the forward part of the cabin hit the ground and were damaged. The right-hand wing attachment fittings and aft cross-link broke off. The aircraft without the right-hand wing rolled over to the left due to forces of inertia. The aircraft yawed to the right and the fuselage rolled over onto the left-hand wing, pivoting around the left-hand wing attachments. The left-hand stabilizer and elevator hit the ground and were ripped from the fuselage. This is... Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty brutal. The aircraft came to rest after having turned approximately 100 degrees to the right from the impact direction, with the fuselage lying on its left side on the left wing blocking the two left-hand exits. The total length of the wreckage trail was 110 meters. So it's like bank to the right, the right-hand side hits the ground, then it goes over to the left, the left hand kind of hits, rips part of the left off, and then the whole fuselage 
turns 100 degrees to the right from the impact, and it's lying on its left side. So the big question is, what happened to the oil pressure? What happened to cause all of these warnings and cause them to have to return and to cause this problem when they, when they came back into land? Because like I said, remember earlier, the oil pressure warning light and the oil pressure gauge are two separate systems. Uh-huh. The oil pressure warning light was going off, but the oil pressure gauge showed it was still in the green. So, of course, they're going to take apart all these instruments and they test them. And the right-hand engine oil pressure switch was found to have failed internally. Oh. The switch was shorted, which resulted in intermittent illumination of the oil low-pressure light. All other tested instruments and transducers functioned correctly with some minor tolerances exceeded, probably due to impact force. So all of this happened because the light was short-circuited. There was no oil pressure problem at all. At all? The engine was 100% fine. The light was just, it was was doing that thing. I'm sure you've seen it where like lights are going out and they start like flickering intermittently. Uh Uh-huh. That's all that was happening. That's it? That's it. So all the issues they were having was just because he he wasn't used to flying with one engine? It's because he put that right-hand engine to idle when he shouldn't have. The engine was fine. Remember, I said the checklist told them they could continue their flight, but he pulled the right-hand engine to idle and then never put it back up again. But I mean, I thought, is it not common though for, like, because they, they have two engines and they can, they can fly and land with one engine. So right. is it not common to train to fly with just the one? It absolutely is. So then, so again, the captain died in this crash. So there's no way to ask him any questions about this, but it could be, a number of things. It could be he forgot that the right engine was idled. It could be that he was used to, at this point, the autopilot compensating for everything. And then by the time he turned the autopilot off, they were so low, he did not respond correctly because he definitely did not give correct yeah. rudder input. Uh-huh. You know, maybe it just caught him by surprise. Maybe he forgot, you know, it focused on other things. You know, he knows there's a problem with the right, in his mind, he thinks there's a problem with the right engine and he forgets that it's going to cause that asymmetry and he doesn't think ahead to compensate for it. So everything was fine. Everything was fine. Yeah, from the, the, the report says, from the information available, it can be concluded the right-hand engine oil pressure uh, light illuminated as a result of a short circuit in the oil pressure switch. The short circuit closed the switch and as a consequence, the oil pressure warning light was activated. The right-hand oil pressure transducer was found operating normal. And it must be concluded the actual engine oil pressure was correctly presented on the right-hand engine oil pressure indicator in the cockpit. Remember, like I kept saying, it was in the green. That instrument was working right. Yeah, I just, but like, it seemed like something was going wrong with the plane, the way it was handling. Because he said he was having a hard time climbing. And that was that all just in his head? It's because the right-hand engine was at idle. Idle. He, he just wasn't compensating for that, like thinking right. about it. When with only one engine, you're going to have reduced climb performance. Yeah. He may have put it to idle and then forgot briefly that it was in idle and then said, all right, let's turn around because he's preoccupied uh-huh. and then just doesn't ever touch it again the rest of the flight. And remember, even from the beginning, reducing that engine to idle is not part, part of, the, of checklist. the checklist. So even if they completed, even if it was part of the checklist and they completed it at the end, it would probably would have said return throttle to normal position. So he, he just put it to idle, didn't finish the checklist, turned back around, and then didn't remember how to fly with this... Oh. Right, did not correct for that thrust asymmetry. Mm, man. Should the first officer have picked up on any of this? Um, like, I guess he didn't call out that they didn't finish the checklist or that it was still at idle or... 
Yeah, he may not have noticed that it was. I don't remember also the captain put it to idle, which is not part of the checklist, and then didn't say that he was putting it to That's idle. That's true. He didn't call it out. Right. So it could be the first officer just didn't see it. And you know, yeah. he did see some clues to it, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. hey, like the, the oil pressure on that engine's lower, the, 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 the rudder, the rudder trim all the is set the all the way. Yeah. yeah. So there's like little bits and pieces, but in his mind, it, he could also be thinking, well, that engine is acting weird. Not, he's not thinking the engine's at idle. Wait, but didn't, whenever they were coming in for the landing, didn't he, he call it out? Didn't he? They say, oh, did you put your, your... Right. He asked, the control asked if the propeller was feathered or not. Feathered. He responded by saying it was idle. It could be that, I don't know the exact timeline. It could be the first officer was looking at a checklist or was talking to the cabin crew or the, the, the passengers. He could have been like not listening to that little bit of information. It's because it's just one thing that passes real quick. Yeah, he's like, no, it's at an idle. Yeah, okay. You know, it could be, you know, where he's the first officer preoccupied with something else in that specific moment and misses that one sentence. Yeah. Because that's the only time it's ever said out loud or mentioned at all. Okay. So the conclusions here uh, in the the report, you know, during the climb, the right-hand engine oil pressure switch failed, resulting in aural and visual warnings in the cockpit. That's the master switch going off. In reaction to the oil pressure warning, the captain slowly retarded the right-hand power lever to flight idle. The flight crew did not realize that the decrease of the right-hand engine oil pressure was the result of the power reduction. Although the oil pressure remained within normal operating limits, they, contrary to the uh, emergency checklist procedures, kept the right-hand engine running in flight idle. The captain did not realize the consequences of flying with one engine in flight idle and was not able to anticipate correctly on the airspeed variations, which resulted in an approach not stabilized in power, airspeed, and pitch during the final approach a situation which was possibly aggravated by the tailwind component. And that's to say, this is what kind of, the, the, him flying with this one engine is kind of what started to make the approach unstable. Remember I said they kind of dipped below the glide slope a little bit. Their airspeed was coming down. He was not correctly anticipating how the airplane was handling with only one engine. When they were in autopilot, it was landing okay. Right. It was compensating. And then as soon as he turned it off autopilot, that's whenever everything went wrong, right? Right. Plus also that the report does say here, the tailwind component may have aggravated it too. This makes it way more difficult. How many acts, how many accidents, how many episodes have we covered, Chris, where the autopilot's compensating for something, it gets turned off and the pilots don't realize it. And then Mm. everything immediately falls apart. Yeah. It's, it's so frustrating. I guess when you turn off the autopilot, I guess you should, if, if something is going wrong, right, you should look and see what it's doing. Right. Uh, Yeah. And like you said, right then, the first officer did notice, hey, the rudder trim's all the way to the left. But instead of asking, why is that? He said, we should put that neutral. Yeah, because he thinks... He thinks both engines are operating. Yeah. And in fact, that's the next conclusion here. While actually using only one engine, the return flight and approach were executed using all engine operative procedures. So remember, the first officer's the one running the checklists. Uh He doesn't know that one engine's idled. So the checklists he's running are for two engines. There's different checklists for one engine. (laughs) So that's why everything's running all wonky. Right. He's not running the one engine checklist. Oh my God. And that's, that's because he doesn't know the right engine's idled. Incorrect use of rudder resulted in a displacement of the aircraft to a position right of the runway from which a landing was not feasible and a go-around was initiated. <sighs> During the go-around, inadequate use of the flight controls by the captain resulted in loss of control. Crew resource management during the flight was virtually non-existent. Like you pointed out, the first officer's pointing out stuff and kind of on top of it, but the captain's not really engaging. It doesn't seem like he's really thinking about it or processing. It's just very like, yeah, or acknowledge, yeah. you know, not really 
talking about it. Performance calculations showed that under the prevailing circumstances with one engine in flight idle, using proper flight techniques, a go-around could have been made. And I think you mentioned this earlier, you know, pilots should train for using only one engine. And this says it's possible. Even if only Mm -hmm. one engine's there, it's possible for the plane to do it. It's possible for the pilot to do it. The landing and go-around should be possible in this scenario. The accident can be classified as generally survivable. Failure to utilize available restraint provisions in the cockpit resulted in fatal injury. I didn't even get into that. He didn't have a seatbelt on. The captain did not. He had his lap belt on, but not his shoulder belt or his shoulder harness. That's why the first officer survived. He had his shoulder harness on and the captain only had the lap belt on. And that's why he he received fatal injuries during the crash. Huh. Is it standard when you're landing to have both on? I assume, Yes. Right? Yes. It, it, it should be part of the checklist. I don't know specifically on the Saab 340. Even in the single-engine Cessna's iFly, it's part of the checklist. Mm. You probably didn't notice, but before we landed, when I was running the check, when you and uh-huh. I went on a flight, when I was running the checklist, I looked at your seatbelt to oh, make yeah. sure it was on. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm, I'm running the checklist, you know, uh, making sure everything's okay. So ultimately, you know, after all that, there's a couple of probable causes that the report comes up with. Mm-hmm. The big one, of course, is inadequate use of the flight controls during an asymmetric go-around, resulting in loss of control. Contributing factors are insufficient understanding of the flight crew of the Saab 340B engine oil system. Mm. I guess maybe they didn't understand how the two systems were independent. And when Mm -hmm. oil pressure shows fine, that means that the other one is faulty. Lack of awareness of the consequences of an aircraft configuration with one engine in flight idle and poor crew resource management. So you asked me a question earlier that I kind of ignored. Uh Because I knew I was going to answer it right now. I didn't want to (laughs) cut straight to it. Yeah. The other big one here is that training records revealed that Captain Garrett Levart had failed two engine out checks. And on his most recent one, had been given a standard minus, which is the lowest passing grade. So even his training and his testing had shown he was deficient in procedures involving one engine out. Oh, and he got the low, you know, he, what I say, he failed twice and then eventually got the lowest passing grade possible. Mm. So he was deficient in this specific scenario and it happened to him. While he created it. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The engines were fine. The engine was not out. He idled it unnecessarily and... He created his own worst... Case scenario. Yes. So it could be also, I think earlier you were asking, you know, why didn't he notice? Why didn't he, you know, put the the throttle back up? Why Mm -hmm. didn't he say anything? He might also have been scared. He might have been in his own head about it, thinking this is something I'm not good at. Now I have to do it. Yeah. Because he's aware that this is the his thing that he failed twice. Right. Right. Oh. And maybe that's also why he was a little shut down and the crew resource management was not great and he was not really processing what was going on. He might have, in, mentally, he might have been really focusing on, oh no, I have to do this thing. It's going to be difficult. <sighs> but again, there's no way we can know that for certain. Oh, and then to make, I didn't talk about this either, to make matters worse, the first officer, as a result of his injuries, he couldn't remember very much about the flight. <gasps> oh, I think no. he got hit on the head. So he he really couldn't answer too many questions. but. You know, luckily they did have the cockpit voice recorder recorder. and the flight data recorder to reconstruct what happened. That's scary when you're like, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it was a traumatic crash. Yeah. Was he injured badly? Do you know? 
I don't know the extent of his injuries beyond that. I believe he only suffered. I believe he was classified as having suffered serious injuries. Okay. Of the people on board, nine people suffered serious injuries. Three of them were fatal injuries and 12 people were either minor or no injuries. Okay. Is that right? Two, four, six. Why can't I count? <laughs> Three, five, Does seven. Does it list eight, their names? 10, 11, 12. I don't have that in front of me. No, no I'm I, saying, I, but like you're counting as in, is it like. Oh, I'm looking at a map. I'm looking oh, at a seat oh. map. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I was like, is it not just a number? How is it like, what are you counting? <laughs> no, no. It's like a seat map with like, gotcha. uh, yeah, green means yeah, yeah. minor or no injury. Red means fatal. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's all. I'll, I'll, you know what? I will post this seat map on social media so you can see it. We talked about following us at Black Box Down Pod. I will put this on there so you can see what the layout was. Count yourself. <laughs> yes. I, I, I counted like 10 times. It's 12. I don't know why I have to keep counting it. I'm stuck. Chris, I can't. My, 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 my podcast resource management is out the window. I'm focused on counting. This is the one scenario you failed. <laughs> this, is, this is my worst nightmare. Yeah, but that's it. That's it for KLM City Hopper Flight 433. Really just entirely avoidable crash. In so many ways. That, but yeah. that, you, when you, what a drop. It was all fine. Everything was fine. That's, so I was wondering if you were going to notice, like, because we approached this one a little differently. We definitely uh-huh. worked on laying out the play-by-play of what was happening in the flight because the end result is just like, oh, yeah, the light was short-circuited. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. There's so much going on, so much that happens just because of a single short circuit in the light. And we've talked about other, we, we have other the, episodes well, the, in yeah. the past, yeah, where, you know, a burned-out light, Causes people to focus on that, and the plane crashes. We have, I think, they we ran two out of different fuel. ones. Right. So it's 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 terrifying to me that people can become so fixated on something, you know, and cause their own problem when one doesn't yeah. exist. But yeah, that's it for this episode. Uh, give us a follow on social media. I'll post that seat map I was talking about, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.